All right, so the book of Shof team, uh, last week, uh, excuse me, last time we were together, uh, we finished up the life of Jephthah. Uh, but before we get started here, we do want to make a quick little remembrance of the, there's a pattern that we see in the book of Shof team. Israel starts off in peace. Uh, they become apathetic towards the things of God, uh, which leads them to sin. They're then oppressed by an outside source, and they're judged. God raises up a holy judge to bring deliverance to them both spiritually and physically. Uh, so they're delivered out of it. They go back to peace, and the whole cycle starts off again. This is something we always have to remember when we get into the book of Judges, or we read any book in the scripture, and we sit there and we say, well, why is Israel messing up again? We've got to remember every time you point one finger, you always have at least three pointing back at yourself as well. So Israel is messing up, and it's being chronicled for us so that we might learn from their mess-ups and maybe not uh, fall into the same temptations or sins. So remember, at this point, just to give us a broad understanding of where we are in, in the timeline, Yehoshua, or Joshua, brought the children of Israel into the land after Moshe passed. And uh, they begin their consequence. The time of the judges lasts about 277 years and uh, we've gone through the judges Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Shamgar, Gideon, Tola, Jair, and we finished up last time together with Jephthah. So with Jephthah, remember we learned uh, Jephthah was a judge. He did deliver the people from Ammon, the people of Ammon. However, he made the mistake of offering up the first thing to God that came out of his house, and we found out that that was his daughter. We went over the fact that the sages are kind of divided. Some say, yes, he did offer up as a burnt sacrifice, and others say, no, that's not acceptable to God. So he probably just made her be a virtual, uh, uh, um, a virgin for the rest of her life. I could really go either way on the subject. I see the damage that's done because of, of a foolish choice and a quick vow that was made on his part. And then we see that later on, his ego ends up getting him in trouble with the, the, the children of Ephraim, and it actually leads him to a civil war. So remember, we read from the Raubag, and he says the root of the tragedy was a clash of egos. Jephthah was justifiably angry that Ephraim showed him no gratitude from risking his life to save the nation from Ammon, while Ephraim accused Jephthah of arrogance and not calling upon others to join the battle. We know as we read through the scripture, that wasn't true. Jephthah did call upon them. They chose not to come. So we have some ego taking place there. And as a result, they end up, after this great victory that Adonai had delivered them into, from, into, that they end up in a civil war. And tens of thousands of the Ephraimites end up getting destroyed and killed. It wasn't a good end to the story there. However, we do see that 25 years of peace come about afterwards as a result. And so this week, we're actually going to learn about three judges at the same time within the matter of like five minutes. So we had Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon will be the ones that we're going to learn about this week. And we're actually going to get a little introduction to um, uh, Samson as well, Shimshon, but we're not going to get too much into his life. As you all know, uh, the last half of the book actually deals with the life of Shimshon because he uh, sets a great example of uh, who the people of Israel are at the time and why they end up needing a king in the subsequent years following. So, picking up at the end, in verse 8 of chapter 12, so after him, that is Jephthah, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and he had 30 daughters. 
whom he sent abroad. The man was busy. It's a lot of children. So 60 children. And the tradition of the time was is that you would take your daughters and you would send them and make political agreements and let them marry into other families. And then you would also take daughters from other families and bring them into your house. So the man was busy. And he was actually politically doing great things for the people of Israel and making these peace treaties. So he brought 30 women from abroad in to marry his sons. He judged Israel for seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Beit Lechem. So we're also going to see here these, la these next three judges. They're going to have short terms of judgment. And we've made note of that in the past, that every subsequent judge brings less peace, time of peace between them, and he actually judges for less time. And we're actually going to come to Shimshon, and we're going to find out that Samson, when he judges, that he doesn't even bring deliverance to the children of Israel. Very interesting. Of course, Shimshon, we know, is going to be followed by the ultimate judge, which is Shimuel, who we know is going to bring in the reign of the kings. Now, after Elon, from Zavul, uh, after him, excuse me, Elon from Zavulin judged Israel. He judged Israel for 10 years. Then Elon from Zavulin died and was buried at Ayelon, excuse me, in the territory of Zavulin. We've made note before where we've had judges where they're given one or two sentences, and we're not told anything about them. And in my opinion, no news is good news. If Adonai doesn't see fit to say something bad about this person, then I don't think we can stand in judgment of this person as well. However, at the same time, we can say that Adonai didn't see fit to actually praise this person as well either. So maybe he made, lived more of a mediocre life. But we know that during the time that he was reigning for these 10 years, there was peace. So we can give him that attaboy during that time. So after him, third judge already, Avdan, the son of Hillel from Puraton, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel for eight years. Then Avdan, the son of Hillel from Piraton, died and was buried at Piraton in the territory of Ephraim in the Amalek Hills. So our third judge that we're talking about this week comes on the scene. He, he judges with his 40 sons and his 30 grandsons. They're all riding on young donkeys. This is a sign of, um, of greatness, of, of political prowess. He, he's going out throughout the land. He has a family that has his back who is going out and is instructing the people in the words of God. And therefore, we see peace is brought upon the land. So aside from that, we're not really told much about these three gentlemen. However, the Talmud does shine some light on one of them. We're given a little bit of an understanding. So in, in the Talmud in Basra 91a, the sages teach that Ibzan, and this is a paraphrase because there's a whole great dialect that goes on in this section. But we see that the sages teach that Ibzan was actually Boaz, who became the husband of Ruth and the ancestor of King David. He's compared, unfortunately, unfavorably with Manoah, who we're going to find out is actually the father of Shimshon or Samson. Now, Ibzan did not invite Manoah to any of his wedding feasts because he thought Manoah is childless and will never be able to invite me in return. The result was that all Ibzan's children died in his lifetime, and his only descendant was the child of Ruth, 
However, this child of Ruth was born after Ibzan's own death. And the childless Manoah, however, begot Samson, who became a judge and savior over Israel. Now, once again, this is from the Talmud. However, I think there's some great wisdom and understanding that we see that's brought forth from this verse here. So Ibzan, remember, was the judge. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. It's interesting that the idea that this man could very well possibly be Boaz. You know, we know the story of Boaz and Ruth. Ruth comes back. She says, your people will be my people. My, your God will be my God. And she goes after this man, Boaz, who's an old man. According to the sages, at this time, he has lost his wife. He's lost all of his children. He has nothing left to his name except this one Moabitess woman who has been grafted in, who has made the step over to come into and be part of Israel. She is the one who will give birth not only to the descendants of David, but also, as we know, she will be the root that the Messiah comes forth from. So we see some bad stuff happens. If this is, in fact, if Ibzan is Boaz, some bad stuff happened in his life. He lost all of his children. And yet in his death, he had no children, yet a child was born after his death who would bring forth the Messiah. It's sad. This whole situation here brings up the question of why do bad things happen to good people? I think this is something that in our society we shy away from, this, these questions. We always ask them when we see the death of a child before a parent or when we see an accident on the side of the road. We ask why. Why Adonai was this allowed to happen? You know, sometimes it's because of our own poor choices. We can all admit that. I was speeding down the road and I got a ticket. My poor choice. Direct consequence of that. However, in this instance, we're not able to say that we're the good person. <laughs> I did something wrong, therefore I'm in the wrong. That makes me technically a bad person. I've committed sin. And a great example of this we saw in our parasha this week. So in Bereshit, chapter 27, verses 41 and 45, Jessica had us here just after this, after this part here, and it says, Esau hated his brother because of the blessing his father gave him. Esau said to himself, the time for mourning my father will soon come, and then I will kill my brother, Yaakov. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rivka. She sent for Yaakov, her younger son, and said to him, here, your brother Esau is comforting himself over you by planning to kill you. Therefore, my son, listen to me. Get up and escape to Levan, my brother in Haran. Stay with him a little while until your brother's anger subsides. Your brother's anger will turn away from you, and he will forget what you did to him. Interesting take as you read the whole story. Then I'll send the, and bring you back from there. Why should I lose both of you on the same day? So clearly, Jacob, along with his mother Rivka's choice to deceive his father, brought about some bad consequences. So in this case, it's hard to say why do good things happen to, or why do bad things happen to good people. We're going to see ultimately that Adonai's plan will take forward, will go, come forth from this. However, some bad decisions, or not the best decisions, have been made. As we begin to close out the book of Shoftim with the life of Shimuel or Samuel, excuse me, Shimshon or Samuel, 
We're going to see more and more that pride and ego, when left unchecked, bring about our own fall. That, that's how we get in trouble. It's our pride. It's our ego. It's our unwillingness to let go and to forgive and to move on and to apologize that get us in trouble. Why do bad things happen to good people? Sometimes we're being prepared for greater things. And that's a hard one. Because that's one where we don't see the fruit of it until it's already happened, which means we have to go through a lot of trouble before we see the fruit take place. Sometimes we're being prepared to do greater works in the kingdom of God. Sometimes we're being prepared for that promotion at work. Sometimes we're being prepared for that restoration with a broken friendship. We just don't know. I love uh, a quote from Zig Ziglar, who's a motivational speaker. Oh, excuse me, was a motivational speaker. He has passed away. But he says this, sometimes adversity is what you need to face in order to become successful. You know, quite oftentimes in life, we can become stagnant and stale in where we're at. We're just living life. I don't want anyone to rock my boat. But until that boat is rocked, we don't realize, you know, if I add a rudder, and I, if I add some ballast to this boat, it's going to stabilize, and I'm going to be able to go faster and further than I've ever been able to go before. Oftentimes, we look on at other people's lives, and we say, you know what? They've got it together. Look at that person. They've got no bills. Man, that person makes six figures. Oh, I wish I was that person. And you know, the pasture always looks greener on the other side of the fence. And the thing that we often forget or, or choose not to acknowledge is that the pasture is greener because there's more cows in the field. And more cows produce more dung. So sometimes the past, pasture looks greener on the other side of the fence because that person has already had to go through and wade through a tremendous amount of poop. <laughs> you know, the people that we see in our lives who they've been through a lot. I mean, we have people in our congregation. Like, I look on and I'm like, I can't believe the story you told me. But God made you, brought you through it. And that person is stronger. Those are the people we go to when we're down and when we're out. We go and we say, how did you get through this? And they'll give you that same answer every time. I don't know. <laughs> but Adonai did bring me through. So a third option that we see as to why bad things happen to good people is that there circum sometimes there are circumstances that are out of our human control. We just don't know why. And we see a perfect example of this with Job. So go ahead, turn with me to page 933 in the complete Jewish Bible. We're going to be in Job, or Yov, chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. And we say this part of this prayer every Shabbat. But let's, let's hear the whole story. So verse 6. Now it happened one day that the sons of God came to serve Adonai. And among them came the adversary. Now Adonai asked the adversary, where are you coming from? And the adversary answered Adonai, from roaming the earth, wandering here and there. And Adonai asked the adversary, did you notice my servant Jehovah, that there's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? Now the adversary answered Adonai, is it for nothing that Jehovah fears God? You've put a protective hedge around him, his house and everything he has. You've prospered his work and his livestock are spread out all over the land. But if you reach out your hand and touch whatever he has, 
Without doubt, he'll curse you to your face. Now Adonai said to the adversary, Here, everything he has is in your hands, except that you are not to lay a finger on his person. Then the adversary went out from the presence of Adonai. Time passes on. And one day, when Eov's sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to him and said, The oxen were plowing, with the donkeys grazing near them. When a raiding party from Shiva came and carried them off, they put the servants to the sword too, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Now while he was still speaking to Job, to Yov, another one came in. Fire from God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. It completely destroyed them, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Still, while he was still speaking, another servant came and said, The Kasdim, three bands of them, fell on the camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword too, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another servant came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. When suddenly a strong wind blew in from the desert, it struck the four corners of the house so that it fell on the young men, on the young people. They are dead, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. He didn't just lose his children. He lost it all. Everything. As you continue on through the story of Eov, you find out even his wife comes to a point, she says, why don't you just curse God and die? It's the one thing he didn't take from Eov was his wife. But ultimately, in the end, it serves to exonerate him and her as well in the end, because later on she does end up bearing children. They both come to a realization that, you know what? God's still in control. So after receiving this news, Eov got up, he tore his coat, shaved his head, fell down on the ground, and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there. Adonai gave, Adonai took, Blessed be the name of Adonai. And in all this, Eov never committed a sin nor put blame on God. That's amazing. I can never tell you why bad things happen to good people. But what I can point to is that with Eov sets the perfect example. Sometimes we don't know what's happening. And sometimes it seems like it's too much. And yet his character shines through this that he knew that Adonai was his creator, that he knew Adonai somehow was in charge, and it wasn't his fault, but that Adonai would carry him through. We find out later on at the end of the book of Job, he's not only blessed with having more children, he has double the amount of children, double the amount of herds, and double the amount of wealth. He received a double blessing. He just held in there a little bit longer. Unfortunately, in contrast, we're going to see as we start to learn about Shimshon, he's not Yov. He's going to have some characteristics that are very much on the outside of what um, Eov sets forward as a standard. For example, we're going to see that Shimshon, as we get into his life, he's concerned only for himself and his own personal feelings. And when he does start to take vengeance and start to be a deliverer, he's only acting upon his own personal vendettas. And now before we throw Shimshon under the bus and say, hey, this is messed up. We have to remember that Shimshon is actually acting 
just like the rest of Israel is at the time. They were spiritually apathetic. They worked on their own personal vendettas. And lest we forget, this is how we act too. We are in no better state. We do the same things. We act on our own personal vendettas. My feelings were hurt, so his feelings should be hurt as well. God forbid. We don't want to do that. We don't want to hurt harm or heave harm upon other people, but we want to lift them up and bless them. So chapter 13 of Shoftim, verse 1. Again, the people of Israel did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. And Adonai handed them over to the Pilishtim for 40 years. There was a man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoach. His wife, his wife was barren, childless. Now the angel of Adonai appeared to the woman and said to her, Listen, you are barren and you haven't had a child, but you will conceive and you will bear a son. So we see 25 years they've had peace, and now all of a sudden for 40 years they're being oppressed by the Pilishtim. What's interesting about this oppression is they're not oppressing them so much that the children of Israel are crying out for help like we've seen them do in the past. They're tolerating it. It's kind of like this past November. We had an election. I think for a lot of us, the election did not go the way that we would have liked to. But we tolerated those who were in rulership over us. We're like, fine, we'll get them next time. That's kind of the same state that they're in. They're like, fine, these Pilishtim, they're over us, they're ruling over us, but you know what? I'm not uncomfortable enough to where um, I want to push against them and I want God to take care of them. And so we're going to see that this is why Shimshon has to have a personal vendetta because the Israelites as whole do not want it taken care of. They're comfortable. So Shimshon is going to be personally offended, and he's going to take matters into his own hands personally. Now, therefore, the angel continues, be careful not to drink any wine or intoxicating liquor, and don't eat anything unclean. For indeed, you will conceive and bear a son. No razor is to touch his head, because the child will be a nazir from God, or for God from the womb. Moreover, he will begin to rescue Israel from the power of the Pilishtim. So we see this vow of the Nazir. Now, please don't confuse this word Nazir with Nazarene. Okay, this happens quite often with people. Um, while Yeshua, our Messiah, was from Nazareth, that does not necessarily make him a Nazir. Okay, similar sounding words, not the same meanings. Okay, so a Nazir. So when we see this brought up to us, we see it in Bamidbar, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and it says, Now Adonai said to Moshe, tell the people of Israel, when either a man or a woman makes a special kind of vow, the vow of a Nazir, they're consecrating themselves to Adonai. So now this special vow this, uh, of the Nazir, it, there, there's three primary things that are taking place here. First of all, no great products at all. No grapeseed oil, no wine, no juice, no nothing. No wrapped grape leaves, mm, delicious, but none of that. No cutting of the hair. And no touching dead carcasses, whether they be animal or human being, whether they be neighbor, friend, or family member. The, the vow of the Nazir is temporary as well. It, it has a beginning and an end point. At the end point, you go to the temple, you go through mikvah, and then you, you present an offering to Adonai, and then you move forward with your life. 
However, we're seeing with Shimshon here, he's going to be a Nazir from the point of his conception all the way to his death. It's a unique circumstance that's taking place here. And we're going to see why. Because this word Nazir literally means separate or consecrated. So from the beginning, Adonai says, your son Samson, when he's born, he's going to be separate unto me and consecrated for my purposes. He's got a special calling on his life. Which is interesting because this word Nazir comes from the Shoresh Nazar, which means to uplift or lofty. So we see that he has a lofty purpose in his life, and he's going to reject that lofty purpose every single step of his life as he goes along. But Adonai will use him in the end. I find it very interesting that from this verse, as we look on, we see a couple of declarations from Adonai here. First and foremost, that Adonai has a plan for every single child in uterine. Every single child that has not been born yet, Adonai has a plan. We have to be pro-life. As we read the scriptures, we can't help but look on and say, you know what? Adonai has a plan and a purpose for every child. As we interfere as a country, we're in theory messing with God's plan. We do need to repent as a country for this. Judgment starts in the house of Adonai. If we don't have our stuff straight, how do we expect him to change things? It begins with us. So the woman came and told her husband, she said, a man of God came to me. His face was fearsome, like the angel of God. Remember, at this point, she doesn't realize this is actually an angel. She's still thinking this is a human being. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, listen, you will conceive and bear a son. So now don't drink any wine or other intoxicating liquor, and don't eat anything unclean, because the child will be a Nazir for God from the womb until the day he dies. Now, if you notice from what we just read, she did omit one thing, and she did add another thing there. So the one thing she omits is she forgets to tell her husband that he will begin to deliver the children of Israel. And the other thing she adds is that he'll be a Nazir to the day he dies. Adonai did not say that. He did not declare that. Adonai declared that from his birth he will be a Nazir. But she infers that if he's born a Nazir, he's got a great purpose. And he's probably going to die as a Nazir as well because of that purpose. I think the, the simple explanation of why she chose not to tell her husband that he would begin to deliver the people is because she thinks this is a man. And remember, as a prophet, you don't give a prophet credence until their prophecies come true. That's why she wants to know the name of the man. How, what is your name? So that when your prophecy comes true, we can give honor to you. That's a deal because you're a prophet. So then Manoach prayed to Adonai, please Adonai, let the man of God you sent come again to us and teach us what we should do for the child who will be born. God paid attention to what Manoach said, and the angel came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But her husband Manoach was not with her. Two easy concepts here. One, either she was more spiritual than him. Good chance there. Or secondly, maybe the angel appeared to her first because she had seen the angel first. So if a random angel appears to Manoach, he'd be like, how do I know you're the right one? I got to go get my wife anyways to verify that you're the right person. I could really go either way. Being a married man, I know there are often times when I am working in the flesh and my wife says, well, what about this verse? And you got to stop and be like, well, you're right. You're being more spiritual than me. You have that better connection with Adonai. 
And that's a beautiful thing that we see within marriage is the give and the take on both sides. Now the woman hurried and ran in to tell her husband, here, that man, the one who came to me the other day, he's come again. Now Manoach got up, followed his wife, wise man, went to the man and said to him, are you the man who spoke to the woman? So he's wise in following her, but then when he gets there, he totally doubts her. And he says, are you really the man? And he answered, yeah, I am. So Manoach asked, now, when what you said comes true, what are the guidelines for raising the child? So Manoach's confirmation of the prophecy is that I will have a son. Because to this point, they've been barren. So that's all Manoach wants. She's looking long-term. When the deliverance happens from the Philistine, Manoach is looking short-term. He's like, all I need is this little one. If you can give me a boy, it's all good. I'm going to trust you. What are the guidelines for raising the child? What should be done for him? And the angel of Adonai said to Manoach, the woman should take care to do everything I said to her. She shouldn't eat anything that comes from a grapevine. She shouldn't drink wine or other intoxicating liquor, and she shouldn't eat anything unclean. She should do everything I ordered her to do. As parents, we find great wisdom when we seek God's guidance first, especially as they come into the teenage years. That rule book is just thrown out the window. It seems like they become someone completely different. But Adonai has those answers for us found in Scripture, and he will lead and he will guide us. Now, the commentary of the early prophets says this. There is an ethical lesson in the angel's command here. If parents wish to have an exalted child, they must begin long before the child is born by perfecting their own conduct. So we have two exhortations here. The first exhortation is we are to raise up offspring which fears God. They don't get to choose if they're going to fear God or not. We need to teach them to fear God. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says that we're supposed to train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. They're not always going to make the right decisions, but we're still there to train them up and bring them forward. The second exhortation is that we are responsible to set that example to fear God ourselves. Why should our children follow Adonai if we choose not to follow Adonai? That doesn't make sense. We don't have a right as a parent or even as grandparents, if I can go that far, to say, you're not allowed to do this sin, but I'm allowed to do it. We just don't have that right. we got to set that great, good example. And unfortunately, this week in our parish, we saw that good example was not set. Rivka came to Yaakov and said, hey, I need you to go in and to deceive your father. The example was not set. So when the child follows the example, how can we condemn the child for that? He's following the example that's been set forward by him. So Manoach, verse 15, said to the angel of Adonai, please stay with us a bit longer so that we can cook a young goat for you. The angel of Adonai said to Manoach, even if I do stay, I won't eat your food. And if you prepare a burnt offering, you must offer it to Adonai. We see a huge standard set forth here. Who is this angel? This angel is directly pushing off worship himself to Adonai. So we know that this is, in fact, an angel. For Manoach did not know that he was the angel of Adonai. Manoach said to the angel of Adonai, tell us your name so that when your words come true, we can honor you. He still thinks he's a man. 
And the angel of Adonai answered him, why are you asking about my name? It's wonderful. This word wonderful is interesting. It's pale, and it means remarkable or a secret. In other words, this messenger says, you don't need to know my name. All you need to know is the God whom I serve. He's the one that you're going to bring the offering to. My name doesn't matter in this. So Manawak took the kid and the grain offering and offered them on the rock to Adonai. Then with Manawak and his wife looking on, the angel did something wonderful. Same word that's used here. Something secret, something crazy, something mystical happens. And as the flame went up toward the sky from the altar, the angel of Adonai went up in the flame from the altar. When Manoach and his wife saw it, they fell to the ground on their faces. But the angel of Adonai did not appear again to Manoach or his wife. Then Manoach realized it had been the angel or messenger of Adonai. So Manoach said to his wife, We will surely die because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If Adonai had wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from us. And he wouldn't have shown us all this or told us such things at this time. So he is not wrong to see the face of God. To be in the presence of God is to be dead. This is the messenger of God. They're able to communicate, to speak with him. So her wisdom comes through once again. She's super level-headed in the midst of all this. And I think it's because she remembers that there's a plan for the child that's going to be in her womb. That there's a plan for all of Israel and there's a plan for all of us. You know, sometimes we don't understand what's going on. We don't understand the good and the bad and how it's all going to pan out. But there's a plan. He knows the plan. However, when the bad things come in our lives, our character is shown by the way in which we respond to it. It's not shown by freaking out or by yelling or screaming. It's shown by the thoughtful process. The remembering that Adonai is in control and that he has allowed something to take place in our life. May we all be like Job. And may it be said of us, amongst our family and our friends and the world as, at large, that in all this, Eov, us, we ne neither committed a sin nor put blame to God when the bad things happen. Shabbat shalom.